Welcome to the Health Lab. I am your host, Joel Blend, occupational therapist. Today's episode, episode 13, features Dr. Noah Silverberg. Dr. Silverberg, he is a neuropsychologist. He's mainly working in the realms of caring for individuals with concussion in civilian sports and military settings. He also holds a full-time academic position in the Department of Psychology at the University of British Columbia. And his research mainly focuses on psychological aspects of concussion, including prognostic factors, behavioral and mental health treatments, as well as knowledge translation. So he is an active contributor to multiple clinic practice guidelines on concussion, as well as an expert panel member. So pretty established individual when it comes to concussion assessment, prognosis, and treatment. Be very, very interesting to really pick his brain about what concussions are, how to manage them, any strategies out there for family and, and friends of an individual who has a concussion and, and what the outcomes are and, and what people can really expect and how to overcome some of these limitations that they might be experiencing following a concussion. So let's get into it with Noah Silverberg. Noah Silverberg, thanks so much for joining me in the Health Lab. Happy to. Thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. I, I want to start with, well, if you actually, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself, your background, your education, and, and what you do for a living. Sure. I'll give you the short story. I'm a neuropsychologist by background. That's the kind of psychologist who has specialty training and expertise in uh, brain injury, uh, usually helping to figure out how somebody's been affected by a brain injury and also getting them better, especially in terms of difficulties with thinking skills and emotions and that sort of thing. Uh, so I spent the first 12 years of my career uh, at GF Strong Rehabilitation Center, which hopefully your listeners will be familiar with, uh, working in brain injury rehabilitation there. Uh, for the last 10 of those years, I, I split my time about 50-50 as a clinician scientist, so also developed a research program uh, primarily in concussion. And recently I've transitioned over to the Department of Psychology at UBC and continued my uh, concussion research program there. Excellent. What, what got you interested in concussion? Yeah, I'd say it started uh, pretty early on in my graduate school training. So I was uh, working as, as a student, a trainee at the Rehabilitation Institute of Michigan in Detroit uh, in their brain injury program and was just really struck by the wide range of outcomes after this injury and outcomes that didn't correlate very well with injury severity. So I remember like one of the first patients I saw there was in a pretty horrific car accident, a, a convertible sports car rolled over at high speed and crushed. It was ugly. And uh, yeah, it's pretty bad injury, you know, coma for more than a week and, and long lasting post-traumatic confusion, lengthy hospitalization, et cetera. And this young man uh, about six months later was back at college studying, um, driving, living on his own, <laughs> looking pretty well. So it was kind of a lesson in the brain's resilience. 
but at the same time, I was seeing patients who had what seemed like the mildest of head traumas of a sort of, you know, bending over and bumping your head on a cabinet uh, door or something like that. Um, you know, no loss of consciousness, no, um, nothing visible on brain scans, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, but would go on to have long-term uh, disability and, and chronic symptoms. And so it's just, yeah, trying to, trying to make sense of, of that. Yeah, such a, such a spectrum of severity. And, and like you said about, sure. you know, about the mechanism of injury, you know, I've experienced that a lot with the clients that I see. I work with many concussion clients and have done so for a number of years. And similar to what you've said, I see clients who've been hitting the head with a lead pipe and they're back playing football and, and you know, driving a forklift the next week. And then I've got clients who drop a pen and just kind of, you know, knock their head on the on the top of their desk and they can't function for two years. Yeah, exactly. Incredible. And so, I mean, okay, that, that individual that you talked about, the one who was in the coma, was that was that defined as a concussion or was it more of a no. moderate to severe brain injury? Okay. Yeah, no, definitely a more severe brain injury. So you know, I think about concussion as being on a wide spectrum of traumatic brain injury severity. Um, so at the very mildest end of that spectrum, you know, we, we might call it even a, a sub-concussive injury, sort of like a hard blow to the head that doesn't result in any apparent damage or, or symptoms or perhaps very mild uh, changes that would not be clinically recognized as a concussion. And then moving up on that continuum, you would find concussion and then moderate severity brain injury, and then all the way up to profound uh, traumatic brain injury, the sort that is basically not survivable. Mm. So concussion on the milder end, of course, the, of the brain injury spectrum. Can, can you define what a concussion is and, and why or, or how it actually occurs? Yeah, uh, sure. I, I should just also caution us to uh, with using the word mild to describe this injury. You know, uh, on the spectrum of injury severity that I was talking about, that, that term makes a lot of sense. Uh, but, you know, in speaking with patients, many of whom have rather severe and, and long-lasting symptoms, they would consider their condition to be anything but mild. Uh, so I just want to acknowledge that. Very valid. Uh, what is a concussion? Well, <laughs> maybe I'll give you like a textbook definition and then we can unpack it a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, essentially we're talking about uh, an acute physiological disruption of brain function that's caused by some kind of external mechanical force. Uh, and so that happens when, for example, a head is moving very quickly and suddenly uh, comes to a, a stop when it makes contact with a hard surface or object or vice versa. You could have a very fast moving uh, object like uh, the lead pipe you mentioned or a, a baseball or something like that um, coming uh, to make uh, to make contact with a stationary head or, or both could be moving. Um, it can also occur when the brain is shaken vigorously within the skull, um, like when a, a car comes to a sudden stop and there's kind of a whiplash uh, mechanism thrusting it forward and back, uh, that sort of thing. So that 
th those sort of mechanisms I just described cause changes at the cellular level uh, at minimum. That's how we get uh, signs and symptoms of concussion. They can also cause uh, damage to structures that become visible on, on brain scans, like a contusion or bruising of the brain or uh, a small bleed from a, a ruptured blood vessel. But the majority of, of concussions don't involve uh, that degree of damage. So, I mean, without being able to see the majority of them via imaging or, or what have you, how, yeah. are they how are they typically diagnosed? Uh, inconsistently would okay. be the best answer I can give you. Um, and, and so concussion is certainly not unique in terms of a, a clinical condition where we rely on signs and symptoms, like what a patient tells us, how they're feeling, and maybe some tests that we can give them to measure how well their brain is working, all of which are quite imprecise and, and can be affected by things other than concussion. So it's really about putting all those signs and symptoms together, uh, considering other conditions like um, you know, neck strain and, and whiplash um, that may contribute to what the patient uh, is experiencing in the moments following, say, a car crash mm -hmm. um, and coming up with the best possible diagnosis. I see. And I mean, you mentioned different signs, different symptoms. What can someone really expect in terms of, say, emotional symptoms, physical symptoms, cognitive symptoms? Well, they're, they're hugely variable. So I would say, you know, two concussions don't necessarily result in the same sort of collection of symptoms. And, and in fact, almost certainly don't. Um, so there are definitely some that are more common than others and some more common in the sort of hours to days following injury and others more so later on, uh, the ones that tend to stick around. But yeah, like, like you pointed out, um, among the common are uh, headache and uh, fatigue and uh, changes with thinking skills like forgetfulness or difficulty concentrating, maybe feeling more uh, emotional or, or, or irritable, um, uh, changes with sleep, you know, very acutely, uh, it's not uncommon to experience dizziness and, and nausea and that sort of thing, but, but those are ones that tend to be relatively short-lived. And I mean, <laughs> What's, I know that there's so much variability with respect to this, but what's the prognosis for the most part for individuals who have suffered a concussion? Is it, you know, is there hope that they're going to get better within a certain time frame, or is it just mm -hmm. all up in the air? Or? Yeah, I mean, it is variable, but overall the prognosis is good. Um, and it's easy to lose sight of that when a lot of what we hear reported in media headlines and all that are sort of the, the, the worst cases and, and possible scenarios. But the reality is, um, if you suffer a concussion, the, the statistics are in your favor. You know, chances are you will make a, a complete and swift recovery, uh, whether it takes you a few days or a few weeks, uh, or for some people longer. Um, that, that's, you know, part of the variability, but yeah, on average, uh, people do tend to recover well. I mean, you, you said some people longer, of course, there's variability with respect to, you know, yeah. the injury, the individual, what they've already been through previous concussions, I presume, uh, are there any other major factors that 
play into that? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're still trying to understand this. And some of the things we assumed are related to concussion prognosis aren't. Um, and then we've learned about some things that you know we didn't consider before that do seem quite important. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, you mentioned prior concussions. You know, presumably, if you've had uh, a concussion before or, or multiple prior concussions, sort of intuitively, uh, you're going to have a, a much slower, less complete recovery from concussion. Um, and actually, there's been a lot of work looking at exactly that question. And for the most part, it seems like, uh, at least as far as having one prior concussion or two uh, over your lifetime, um, makes very little difference to your prognosis. Hmm. Now, of, of course, if you have a concussion and a few months later have another and a few months later have another, that's probably bad. But, you know, that's also uncommon for most people who have a history of prior concussions. They're quite spread out uh, over years. And yeah, there's very little evidence suggesting that that makes a difference. Uh, another would be like the severity of the injury, whether loss of consciousness is involved or not. So people get hit hard enough to get knocked out cold and lay unresponsive versus those who just are a bit dazed and confused, but go on. Again, it doesn't seem to make much difference. Um, having brain damage that's visible on a crude clinical scan, a CT scan, you know, we'd think, gosh, if there's a, a lesion or a bleed in the brain, uh, surely that would be associated with a worse prognosis. And here it's a bit more mixed. Um, it probably is associated with a worse prognosis, but, you know, maybe 20, 50% higher risk. It's not like 500% higher risk like we see with some other factors. Interesting. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to mention it also matters. Um, sort of who you are, the, the person that gets injured and, and uh, sort of what you brought to the injury in terms of your prior history. And, and that includes, you know, sex and probably genetics, although we're still learning about that. Um, Pre-injury health problems, both physical and mental health problems actually make a huge difference as far as who gets better quickly or not after a concussion. Um, and then there are a number of more psychosocial kinds of variables that seem quite important in shaping concussion prognosis. For example, how uh, anxious or, or, or depressed somebody gets after a concussion, um, how they go about coping with their symptoms. Um, so those have emerged as, as likely important. Do, do, do we know why that is? Like, is it, I mean, just the, the anxiety and say, say the mood related factors, is it is it a self-fulfilling prophecy or is it an actual chemical change? I'm not sure we know. Um, and then the answer is probably all of the above. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the symptoms of stress, um, so if you experience something traumatic, even just witnessing it, uh, not involving any injury to your brain, it would be typical or, or at least common to have uh, you know, trouble sleeping, having your memory and concentration thrown off, feeling fatigue, getting headaches. So, I mean, there's a lot of overlap uh, with concussion symptoms, and it may be that stress uh, just amplifies those symptoms and, and, and in some cases may be entirely mistaken for concussion symptoms when they really just represent stress. 
Hmm. Hmm. So is that is that like a history of stress and anxiety makes it worse, but then also having an increase in stress and anxiety because of the symptoms themselves, that can make it worse at all as well? So it's, it's clearly both. For example, there's been a couple of studies looking at just lifetime history of traumatic events and many other studies looking at uh, pre-injury uh, mental health difficulties that required treatment. And absolutely, those are both strongly associated with your recovery after concussion. Uh, it's probably also important that symptoms experienced uh, after uh, like uh, mood and anxiety kinds of symptoms after the injury um, seem to add to that. Um, and what's also been interesting lately is some research showing that it's not just that people are anxious or depressed about their symptoms. It, 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 the relationship probably goes both ways in that the, the stress and depression uh, magnify the symptoms and, and disability after concussion. Very interesting. So if there are ways for people to mitigate that or, or manage that stress and anxiety, would that typically or potentially lead to more favorable outcomes? We certainly think so. I mean, that's where all the evidence is pointing. The problem is we don't have rigorous clinical trials um, showing that uh, psychological therapies, for example, can greatly improve outcome. Um, we, we have effective treatments, both psychological and, and drug therapy for, for depression and anxiety. So we already know what to do with them. And there is some evidence that they work similarly after concussion. Uh, but I, I just think we're not quite at the point where we can make a blanket claim that, you know, this, this is the thing that's going to make all the difference for you. Sure. Not, not definitive yet, but, but it's mm. known that it's a contributing factor at least. Yeah. Yeah. And we certainly seem to be going in that direction. Yeah. I'm, I'm also happy to hear what you said earlier about the cumulative effect and if they're spaced out, you know, a certain, you know, by a few years or more, it sounds like that the cumulative effects isn't as severe as, you know, people might have previously thought. Yep, it seems to be. There's also some emerging research looking at age of first concussion and whether that might be important. Most of that has been in the context of, of football uh, and professional athletes or uh, collegiate athletes. Um, so I'm not sure we know the answer there yet, but that may matter also. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear from myself. So uh, a little bit about me. I've managed to I've managed to knock myself unconscious three times, just hmm. me versus the world. Um, <laughs> and the first time I was actually, I was pretty young. I was about six. Uh, I was at my friend, Jonathan Chan's house. Jonathan Chan, if you're out there, um, his mom actually, <laughs> Shout his, out. his mom saved me. We were jumping, <laughs> we were jumping off his staircase into some pillows hmm. on the, on the ground. And I jumped off classic. like the, classic. I jumped off like the tenth step and just you know knocked my head straight into the ceiling, knocked yeah. myself unconscious, rolled to the bottom of the floor, um, had to get a stitch or two. But yeah. I thought I thought I was generally okay. And then my next one, I was I was sixteen and I was just snowboarding and you know no one wore helmets back then. And I managed to run into a tree, knock myself mm -hmm. unconscious then. And then another that'll time do that'll do it. Yeah. And then the last time I was about nineteen and I. I don't know, maybe had too many beverages at night and kicked a street sign and fell backwards and hit my head. Uh, the, street, the street sign one, did it? The, the street sign one that round, yes. Yeah, street yeah. sign one, dual blend zero. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we do some stupid things as children, for sure. We do. Some of us, it still persisted to adulthood, <laughs> but I've managed to regulate it. I'm still going to use this as an excuse for my selective uh, selective attention when talking with my wife, though. <laughs> yeah, only then. Only then and only then, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Has anything changed um, with respect to how concussions are managed over the past few years? Because I know, you know, I don't know exactly when that, when it really started to shift a lot, but I do remember hearing things about years ago about people saying, okay, you have to be in a, you know, a dark room, you know, for, for a week or two, don't move. What's, what's changed about that now? Yeah. I mean, it's been a really interesting history to see the sort of evolution of rest, the role of rest in, in concussion management. Um, so, just to zoom out a little bit, you know, if you look at uh, other kinds of health conditions historically, they're also managed with rest in the sort of early days when we don't really understand what they are and how they work. I mean, that was true for a lot of common conditions, everything from low back pain or high blood pressure during pregnancy or schizophrenia, you know, we didn't understand these things, we just recommended rest. So that seems to be the default for conditions that we don't have a good grasp on. Right. Um, you know, there was this whole revolution around uh, after the Second World War uh, in medicine, sort of recognizing that uh, prolonged bed rest might come with unintended side effects, which, you know, in hindsight seems obvious, restricting somebody to uh, a bed or a, or a dark room for a long time, um, you, you know, they, they may get deconditioned uh, pretty quickly, which by the way, can also look a lot like uh, concussion kinds of symptoms. Um, they can get sort of lonely and then depressed. Uh, if you don't use your brain, it's gonna get a bit foggy after a while and, and so on and so on. Um, and then there were also some clinical trials in the 60s and 70s that, that showed getting people out of bed uh, quicker after concussion may be helpful. Um, and then in the 90s, uh, there was this movement that really came out of the sport concussion literature where they emphasized rest as sort of the first stage of concussion management and that people should only start getting active again once they're completely symptom-free. And that advice, that guideline kind of made its way into concussion care in all kinds of settings, even those where symptoms uh, often don't resolve within hours to days. And so people are left in their dark, quiet rooms for weeks uh, or, or longer. Um, and, you know, that got carried to the extreme where, you know, you hear doctors often cautioning their patients uh, about the, you know, if you text your friends too much, you'll worsen your brain damage and, and that kind right. of thing. Yeah. Um, so it turns out, so I'm going to fast forward through the story here, is that rest is probably unhelpful and, and possibly harmful. And we really saw this change around 2013 to 2015. And then uh, what you see in, in clinical practice guidelines coming out over the last few years is it's, there's a sort of movement to universal acceptance of, okay, maybe a brief period of rest is, is wise, like a day or two when you feel terrible, um, but then you should probably start moving around again. Um, so that, that's kind of where we're at um, uh, in that, uh, the role of rest and concussion management. That's interesting. And there's, you know, there's a lot of 
overlap there with individuals who are suffering from chronic pain as mm -hmm. well. I had this, I, I had a, a doctor of physiotherapy on, on, on the podcast a few months ago. His name's Dr. Baram Jam. He's based out of Toronto. Mm -hmm. And he, he has this, um, he works a lot with people with chronic pain and he has these posters up in his clinic. And I actually, he's got this quote that he coined and it's, if you're thirsty, you need to drink. If you're hungry, you need to eat. And if you're in pain, you need to move. <laughs> and that resonated really well with me. And I think there, again, there's a little bit of overlap there with concussion. And of course, yeah. you know, moving, you know, strategically um, um, with restrictions and not pushing too hard, but overall, you know, based on what you're saying as well mm -hmm. is, you know, people need to be able to move and need to move yeah. around in order to foster recovery. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true for concussion. And we've actually moved a little further from just get up and move around to actually studying aerobic exercise as a therapy for concussion. And it's actually looking like one of the more effective treatments we have for, for post-concussion symptoms. So we've gone from just rest in the dark to get on a treadmill and start running. That's incredible. So um, come a long way since the 90s. And I mean, even since, you know, like you said, 2013 to 2015 was when this really, really started to gain some traction in terms of moving as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Can you, you know, you, you know, I had, um, I had Dr. Andre Villian on mm -hmm. here a couple months ago, you know him, right? Good guy. Yep. Great guy. I used to work with him pretty closely in Surrey, actually. We talked a little bit about it as well, but I was wondering if you could shed some more light on it too. And that's the difference between just a, a regular run-of-the-mill concussion and what is defined as post-concussion syndrome. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. I mean, I, I view concussion as the initial injury. It is a historical event. It's something that you may have had, but you don't have uh, in present tense. If that's a helpful distinction. It is. Uh, so I, you know, I sort of explained earlier what that initial injury entails and how that it's, um, for some people, the, the symptoms following concussion can last a long while. And, and, and that's what we call post-concussion syndrome. So it really refers to people who have usually multiple symptoms. Uh, that, that's what makes a quote unquote syndrome, you know, not just a headache, for example, then we would just call it post-traumatic headache. Um, and there's no universal agreement on the timeline. So the symptoms have to last for uh, 10 days or a month or, or three months. Um, you know, typically most people would give a response somewhere in that range. Uh, for, for when a patient reaches that threshold, do we, do we now call that post-concussion syndrome? So we also, as a field, can't seem to agree on what, that, what a post-concussion syndrome diagnosis should entail. Um, you know, for example, will any three symptoms do, or do you have to have symptoms in three different categories? And do those symptoms have to actually cause impairment with your daily functioning? Uh, how important is it to rule out co-occurring health conditions like chronic pain and depression that might explain some of the symptoms you're having? So it's we're still kind of all over the place there. Yeah, that's valid. And I mean, I know I, what you mentioned about, um, you know, the various compounding symptoms here, um, you know, emotional stuff, physical stuff, cognitive stuff. Um, I did want to ask, are there any tips for 
family members to, to help out with someone or, 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 you know, help communicating with someone to help mitigate some of these symptoms that they might be experiencing if they have a family member or a close friend who has suffered from a concussion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think family members and, and patients alike can get a bit familiar with helpful strategies for managing these symptoms. You know, in the early days of uh, concussion, people often feel really, really unwell. Uh, so I think just giving them some time and space to, to let their symptoms settle um, and take care of things is, is, you know, some of the responsibilities they, they, they have as much as possible, you know, that, that's probably most helpful. Um, and then as the days move into weeks, um, yeah, I think just uh, supporting the person in the way that uh, they're trying to cope and, and perhaps even um, you know, suggesting helpful coping strategies that they haven't tried yet, or, or even pointing out things that they're, that they're doing that might not be helpful. Obviously, that can only happen in a trusting relationship and needs to be communicated delicately. Uh, but, you know, it's not uncommon for patients to essentially develop unhelpful habits after a concussion. You know, for example, kind of ignoring how they feel and just you know, keep going with all the work and tasks that they need to do, sort of just as they did before, uh, to a point where their symptoms get uh, worse and they feel terrible, and then they're completely out of it for hours or a whole day. Uh, but when they start feeling better, they get going again and 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 follow that same cycle over and over. So, you know, if you have a loved one who's experienced a concussion, is doing that sort of thing. Um, Pointing, pointing that out to them may be, be serving them well. So yeah, identifying those, those behaviors and patterns that might actually be making things worse overall. And what about the idea that, so I have some clients and you know, they get injured or you know, they have a concussion and it's their family who, is, you know, who can be exceptionally supporting. Sometimes you know, they drop everything and it's all hands on deck. Let's, let's make yeah. this person their breakfast. Let's give them foot rubs, mm. what have you. Let's bathe them. Um, when does that become dysfunctional? Yeah, great question. Um, so I'm hesitant to answer because I'm, I'm pro foot rubs. <laughs> but Fair. Uh, no, I mean, it's absolutely true. So there is such a thing as providing too much help. And this is uh, not just true for concussion, but lots of other conditions as well. So I think one important thing to recognize is that concussion symptoms and, and problems generally improve over time and the level of support and help that somebody needs is likely to decrease over time. Um, and when, it, when that high level of support continues to be uh, offered or, or provided, um, that can actually cause some problems as well. So I'll give you one example with regard to memory difficulties, okay? so. You know, often early on, people are, you know, misplacing their keys and forgetting what they need to do and, and that sort of thing. That, that, that can be typical. Um, and family members may step in to, to handle all that. You know, they'll remind the person or, or take notes for them uh, or, or, you know, they'll, they'll memorize the grocery list and not burden the injured person too, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But, you know, 
if weeks and months go on and the injured person doesn't have the opportunity to actually use their memory, um, there's going to probably be some disuse, right? Like if you just stop using your left arm, it would get weaker and, and, and flabby. Uh, it's not a great analogy, but I think you understand yeah, what makes I'm sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and it also, you know, having, if, if you don't have the ex opportunity to experience memory successes, then you might fail to update your beliefs about your memory and continue to think that your memory is terrible when in fact it might be better, but, but you couldn't possibly know because you don't really use it. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, does that kind of correlate with the concept of learned helplessness? Um, I think it probably fits more closely with uh, avoidance behavior which we see uh, again in, in lots of different health conditions and, and, and some mental health conditions like anxiety as well. So it's the, the sort of negative reinforcement. Sorry to get all psychological on you here. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> um, that uh, perpetuates uh, a belief that that's not helpful. Um, so the belief could be anxiety provoking or it could just be a sort of beliefs about what you can and can't do. Interesting. So it just, again, from the family support perspective, it's kind of a, it, I mean, it just sounds like, I'm just trying to make a comparison in terms of activity levels for an individual suffering from a concussion. From mm -hmm. the family side of things, it's important to help out, but with restrictions, it sounds like. Yeah, I think with the mindset of this is probably going to be temporary and from time to time we should, you know, maybe in partnership with the injured person, um, something that could be negotiated uh, explicitly even, um, look at gradually phasing that out and, and seeing if the uh, injured person can, can take more of those things back on. Right. Just ways to compensate and help them out in the interim um, mm -hmm. until they're able to, you know, remediate some of these deficits over time. Yeah. Yeah. But that phasing out has to come first, right? Like they'll never regain confidence in their memory and build their memory back up through regular use unless the help is phased out earlier. So it really does have to happen in that order. Gradually decrease that support. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, talking about, you know, what we've talked about in terms of doing activity, but putting restrictions on it, ensuring you're getting, you know, you're doing things, but getting adequate rest. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's an analogy I always use, um, or I guess it's a metaphor, maybe it's an analogy, either or, um, <laughs> with some of my clients. And, and, you know, when I'm trying to reinforce the importance of, of, of doing things, but taking breaks, making sure they have adequate rest time to take breaks and, and recover and not push too hard. I always say to them, you know, if they were, if they had broken their legs and they were in a wheelchair or something for the interim, that wheelchair, that's their accommodation. That's what helps them to get around and do things right now. That's the, that's what their brakes are. Their brakes are their wheelchair currently. They need it temporarily. They need to take these breaks. That's their accommodation for the time being um, until they're able to increase their energy levels to the point that they can walk and resume normal functioning in that regard. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Good, I'm glad you liked it. 
<laughs> what if it bombed though? What would you have done? What if, uh, I probably would have just ended the recording to be honest and, 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 and not published it. <laughs> Fair. Just checking. Um, um, so you're you're in research, and that's that's awesome. Is, is there any, or are there any new research studies coming out right now that you can share any information on that aren't top secret? You want me to talk about my own research? Any, yeah. But, and, hey, if um, you have any, if you have any front of the lines research right now, or any other research that you know about. Yeah, I mean, I keep keep pretty close tabs on the concussion literature, and it's a very active area with lots of people all over the world uh, contributing to, and there's new and interesting uh, publications coming out pretty well on a daily basis, uh, which makes it actually quite difficult to, to keep up with. Um, and it runs the gamut. You know, there's a, a lot of uh, biomarker kind of research, trying to find blood tests that can be helpful for diagnosing concussion or uh, that can help predict who's going to get better quickly and who's not. There's uh, some new kinds of assessment tools often involving robotics or other technologies to give more precise measurements of everything from balance to eye movements and then so on. And also a lot of treatment related research, as I mentioned, some related to uh, exercise kinds of therapies, um, but various other sorts as, as well. So in, in my work, a uh, big focus is more on psychological kinds of, of rehabilitation approaches. Um, so I can share a couple examples of that. Um, one is we have a uh, comparative effectiveness trial. So this is a kind of research study that compares two different kinds of potentially helpful therapies, but the, the goal is really to uh, figure out which one works for whom. Um, and, and these are therapies that target some of the psychological factors that we know are important for concussion recovery. I mentioned the sort of overdoing it and excessive re recuperation kind of cycle. Um, another is a fear avoidance behavior that we also touched on. So where people take great care to avoid doing anything that might make their symptoms worse. And, you know, again, in the first few days that that might be fine, but as the weeks and months go by, it makes your life pretty limited. Um, so we've designed therapies looking at those and, um, and uh, trying to figure out, as I say, what, what works for who. Um, some of our research is also more pragmatic. So taking stuff that we already know about concussion and just trying to get it implemented or figure out how to uh, speed up its implementation. So an example of that is uh, we were talking about mental health complications like developing problems with anxiety and depression after concussion, how it's common but treatable. Uh, and what I, I didn't mention before is that these problems often go unrecognized. Um, so people are not getting the kind of treatment they need. And we also realized that uh, family physicians are the ones providing the most uh, care for these patients. So it's not the, the specialists. Um, certainly they're involved, but in smaller numbers. And so we have a study now where we've developed a tool to support family physicians identify and initiate treatment for mental health complications. And we're trying to understand whether that leads to uh, better patient outcomes. Wow, very cool. I love it. Are there any 
here's a question. Are there any areas that really haven't been touched on enough that you think or, or, or approaches that you're kind of really dying to try out or, or dying to put into action and, and, and do more research on? Um, you know, I think there are a lot of therapies that are uh, that patients are already accessing nowadays that we really don't know uh, how well they work, if they work at all, and, and why they work, you know, what are the mechanisms of, of action. Um, and I would like to see some more research done there so we can better direct patients either, yes, keep doing that or do more of that uh, or away from some of those treatments. Um, so I would say vision therapy is an example of that where we see it pretty commonly out in the community, both providers um, offering the service and then patients um, happy to do it, uh, but we, we don't know if it works. And, and so I'd, I'd, I'd love to know. Interesting. Interesting. Thank you for that. Um, just a couple minutes left here, Noah. If someone out there has recently sustained a concussion, are there any one or two quick tidbits of advice that you could give to them to make life a little bit easier if they haven't already had any direction? Mm. Uh, I have a top 17 recommendations. Do we have, do we have time for that or I should... let's, let's narrow it down to 16. <laughs> Generous of you. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just circle back on some of the things that we've touched on already. One is um, to assume that you're going to get better. As I say, the stats are in your favor and we also know that expectations matter. So there's some interesting research showing that people who are particularly worried or pessimistic about their recovery are actually more likely to have prolonged symptoms, sort of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And probably because it sets off a whole chain of unhelpful coping behaviors, et cetera. But um, okay, so I guess that would be one, just assume you're gonna get better, mm -hmm. act as if. Um, another is, you know, we talked about rest. So again, I think keeping it pretty brief, uh, probably a day or two for most people when you feel terribly unwell. And then as best you can to gradually get going again, to, to start small and, and build up reintroducing normal kinds of activities that involve movement and light and noise and mental effort and some of those things that might have been really bothersome in early days. Uh, but it's important to not just go on avoiding those things indefinitely because you know, if you avoid light for a long time, and then you'll notice that even a little bit of light is very bothersome. So you can actually dig yourself a deeper hole in, in some ways. Um, so it is important to, to get going as best you can, but, but gradually. Um, that was two. That's two. Yeah. And you know what? Those were, those were two really good ones. Try to stay, <laughs> to, to try to stay positive and as optimistic as you can and mm -hmm. do as much as you can within reason. Yeah. You said it better. <laughs> Maybe slightly more succinct, but I learned it from you. So <laughs> Noah, thank you so much for joining me. You know, that was, that was quite informative for myself and I'm sure it will be very informative for any of the listeners out there. Sounds good. I hope Great. it is. Excellent. Thanks again. And you have yourself a nice day. Thanks. You as well. Thanks. Noah Silverberg, folks, really enjoyed that conversation. Noah brings an 
excellent breadth of experience, education, and dry humor uh, that really makes up any good psychologist in today's world. So great strategies with respect to concussion recovery and, and great information about new and upcoming research in the field of concussion. Join us in a few weeks' time. I will be sitting down virtually with Ben Numer. Ben is a fundraising advisor for the Breakfast Club of Canada. He really helps to raise money for children across the nation who might not be provided with healthy, nutritious breakfasts each morning that many of us take for granted. So really excited to, to touch base with Ben and, and, and just learn more about the Breakfast Club and the efforts that they are making to, well, really end and child hunger across Canada. So look out for that in a few weeks' time. Until then, enjoy your day, enjoy the weather, stay safe, stay healthy. Thanks, folks.